This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Welcome to the Center for Sports Studies podcast. My name is Brandon Podgorski, Professor of Sport Management at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to this week's podcast. On today's podcast, we have a recorded interview with Dr. Chelsea Day, who is a sports psychologist at Ohio State University. We discussed her path from former student athlete to sports psychologist, her role at Ohio State working with athletes, and some helpful tips for dealing with pregame anxiety. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure, and uh, we're really excited to have a professional in the field of sports psychology here at Trine. It's, it, we have classes for sports psych, and it's a minor that we have here. Um, but it's great to get somebody who's in the field and, and doing this work day to day. And just to start out, to give us a little bit of background on yourself, um, tell us about your role at Ohio State and how you transition into sports psychology full-time. Because if I'm correct, weren't you doing a little bit more kind of clinical things, uh, not necessarily just sport? Yeah, so I am now um, one of four staff people at Ohio State uh, in athletics providing mental health and performance enhancement services to our student athletes. So all my whole day is focused on um, that, the aspect of mental health, performance enhancement, fully student athlete focused. Uh, I had a similar role at IU in Bloomington for a few years, um, but I have also done a couple of other things. So um, I have worked in uh, primary care doing integrated care, which is, is very similar, but it was with non-athletes. So working with physicians to understand the intersection of mental health and physical health care. Um, I was the director of the counseling center at IU Kokomo. So um, doing you know, mental health, but for the whole campus community, not just student athletes, um, and have done some private practice stuff as well that has uh, traditionally been focused more on athletes of all ages. So on recreational athletes, on um, high school athletes, working with professional athletes, Olympic athletes. Um, so a little bit of the whole gamut. So tell us a little bit about the difference, because I think when people hear sports psychology, you know, and I'm a, I'm a novice at this, right? Um, they may not necessarily, they may think, okay, well, we get athletes, we put them on the couch, we should figure out what's wrong. But it, you know, it tends to be a little bit more applied and we're dealing with topics, you know, anxiety and, and stress and, and leadership and motivation. So what's different kind of more of like that, that clinical side where you're working with non-athletes as opposed to what you're doing on a daily basis? Yeah, so it's super interesting that there is a little bit, um, I mean, you know, some people come on my couch and we talk about their lives and their parents and all that, but it's the idea that um, there are two veins of sports psychology that often mm. intersect dramatically, um, but even when we're working with clinical stuff, so if I'm working with some of someone with anxiety, I have to also understand athletic culture. So their life as an athlete, what role that plays and how the anxiety affects their, their role in life as an athlete. And so what makes a sports psychologist different from a regular clinical psychologist is a deep understanding and expertise in sport, in sport culture and sport environment. So, um, you know, we have kids who come in primarily to talk about their families, but uh, if someone's coming in to talk about their family, it's also further exacerbated by the fact that they're a D1 athlete and the pressures of that and not being able to go home or what that means, you know, if they are 
engaging in their sport with the intention of helping to get their family in a, in a better position in life or, or whatever it may be there. But there's also people who come in and they are healthy and happy and life is going well, but there's some performance component that's not going quite right. So it's just performance anxiety. When I get to the start line, I just start panicking and I, I feel awful. Or um, maybe it's just that, you know, the expectations I had when I came in were X and I'm not, I'm not quite reaching that. And I've talked with nutrition and I've talked with sports medicine and I've talked with my strength staff and we're doing everything we can there. So this must be a mental component. And we focus then on purely the mental skills training, the performance side of things. So, you know, I rarely have someone coming in where it's purely one thing or the other. Um, most of it is somewhere in the middle um, because also performance aspects can cause clinical levels of mental health issues as well. So, you know, it's this really fun intersection of, um, all, all, all the things. Uh, so, you know, there are people who do pure, they will only do mental health work with athletes. There are people who do only performance work with athletes um, and where kind of a clinical sports psychologist lives is in that base in between where we do kind of all things for all people. Now, you were a former student athlete, is that correct? I was. I was a diver at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and uh, became a sports psychologist because I could have used one. <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting. And we can kind of get into that, the difference between kind of like team sports and individual sports mm -hmm. and some of the anxiety that goes with that. But um, so do you think it helps being a past for a student athlete? Because you kind of talked about it, having athletes come in and you're talking about so many different things. Do you think your experience helps maybe kind of relate to your um, to your clients a little bit better than had you not been a student athlete? I think so. I think it really informs kind of my perspective. I think that there are people in my field who weren't maybe athletes ever or weren't collegiate athletes or just mm -hmm. played very, very casually. I think probably the biggest piece there is it's just a little bit more legwork to learn and, and that you know, it may take them a little bit longer to build credibility with their clients, not that they can't and not that they can't be equally as effective, but I think it probably makes my life easier because I'm stepping in with a little bit of more of like an automatic credibility for, for some of our student athletes or um, this feeling that, you know, oh, she probably understands, you know, some of what I'm saying and, and how true or how valid some of that is, I don't know, but I think mm -hmm. that it definitely is helpful. Um, in the same way that, you know, when you run into someone who went to the same college you went to, you feel like this automatic connection, even though yeah. you may have gone there 20 years apart and had totally different experiences, there creates a little bit of that easier rapport building. So I think that's probably where it really helps. Um, and then I, you know, I understand the sport culture on a more intimate level as well, um, which can be bad sometimes, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I definitely think it's been helpful for me. Well, you, you started getting into it, talking about working with your athletes there at Ohio State or, or at IU. You're talking about things like whether they're kind of struggling with academics and athletics or homesickness or expectations weren't what they thought they would be coming in. I certainly understand how that was as a former coach. So <laughs> as I talk with my sports psych students when I'm teaching undergrads, you know, I tell them I think college student athletes are interesting or they're an interesting group because they're pulled in so many different directions. You know, I know if I'm a pro athlete, 
you know, you've got your sponsor requirements and you've got team requirements and other things, but college students, I mean, they've got class and they've got friends and, and their sport and then social media, I think is a big component of it too. Um, yep. So what are some of maybe the unique stressors that today's student athletes are going through? Yeah. You know, when I, when I talk about this, I always try to give the kind of precursor that, I, I talk a lot about the unique stressors of student athletes, and I think that there are some. Um, some people can get a little bit frustrated because, you know, what about X, Y, or Z? And I think that there are absolutely students that go to college and work full-time jobs and have, you know, similar demands in terms of the amount and the stress of those demands, but those aren't the people that I'm talking about. And so I'm not saying that a student athlete life is better, worse, harder, easier, or making a judgment on that, but it is very unique in that, you know, they are, their classes have to be scheduled around certain athletic requirements. Um, this is less true at, you know, when we get down to D, D2, D3, but we're talking mm -hmm. about power five schools, you know, you, you go in to schedule your classes knowing when practices are. Um, you have team meetings you have to go to. The NCAA has all of these um, rules on, they call them CARA and RERA, so countable athletic related activities. Um, and so it's this idea of not everything that you do counts toward that 20 hour max. So there are other things that you're required to do, but they're not athletic related. So you may be required to do seven hours of study tables every week where you have to go to a certain location and swipe in and you have to study while you're there, which reduces time and flexibility because those centers are open in certain hours. And then you may have mandatory tutoring that you have to go to and then you may have mandatory other academic meetings that you have to go to each week and those don't count against that 20 hour a week max and so now we're talking about above and beyond things that are are not necessarily by choice they are helpful they are done to be helpful right. but it's still this idea of lack of choice and increased stressors um, sometimes there's kind of service learning opportunities that they are strongly encouraged to do so different volunteering activities which again we should all be doing volunteering and it's great, but when we try to add this, um, some of my kids call them voluntary. So voluntary <laughs> feels mandatory um, mm -hmm. and you feel bad if you miss it, even if it's not required. So, you know, they have all of those things going on. For some of them, they feel as though, you know, that they are trying to perform and do all these things. They're trying to eat well. They're trying to make sure that they're finding the dining halls that have the foods that they need. They're making sure that they're meeting with nutrition and they have their weightlifting and, um, and that if their performance suffers, maybe they lose their scholarship or maybe there's pressure from their families to get a scholarship. And, you know, again, there are, there are definitely academic similarities of kids who are, are experiencing the same thing. Um, but there's also this higher profile nature where, you know, for better or for worse, people aren't following kids who are working full time around to make sure that they're behaving or they aren't uh, asking what percentage scholarship they are from their academic scholarships or it doesn't hit the media when someone comes for a college visit who is a not, not a student athlete. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, there are definitely regular students who experience some of the same amounts of stressors, but just the world that they live in under the microscope and, and kind of more of in a snow globe um, can make those stressors seem even, even worse. And there's often just so much less control and option and choice in the things that they're doing with their time um, that you don't necessarily see reflected in their non-student athlete peers. 
So you said something that made me think about something. Um, when I was going through grad school 12 years ago, I think I read a study, in, I was taking a sports psych class and, and it was about college student athletes and particularly more of those power five conferences. Mm -hmm. And some students on scholarship kind of felt a little stuck. You were talking mm -hmm. about kind of being voluntold and you yep. know, there's things, other things they want to do, whether it be getting a job or spending time with friends or whatever, but if they didn't do some of these things or didn't perform at a certain level, they were going to lose their scholarship and they almost kind of felt captive. And I'm not necessarily, you know, crying for them too much because a lot of them have other opportunities that regular students don't, but there is kind of that feeling that, you know, I'm a little bit, I don't have as many options as maybe other students. And I didn't know yep. if that was something that was actually legit. It is. So, I mean, even, and, and again, you know, we can have varying degrees of empathy and depending on what right. people's perspectives are, they're going to feel differently about it. I obviously, it's the world I'm immersed in. So my empathy is probably a fair bit higher than, than the average um, person. But, you know, when I think about things like, um, even, so, I mean, I was a student athlete like a million years ago and things were a lot <laughs> different when I was at a, I was at a Mac school, which is nowhere near as intense, but one of my biggest regrets in college is not doing a study abroad, but mm. I, I couldn't have, if I were going to do a study abroad, I would have had to give up athletics and that, and I wasn't on scholarship and it still didn't feel like an option. You can't just like miss a semester of, of sport. And right. so, you know, there are things like that where, you know, take away the financial burden of a study abroad that even if I could have figured out funding, I couldn't have gone. And so, you know, now there are some remedies to that where, you know, here at Miami, we were just talking about, um, I'm here for the day. And we were just talking about, you know, student athletes going on abroad trips during their J term and the whole team going and how do we provide them opportunities for study abroad and stuff like that. But it, it's stuff like that and not being able to have, you know, have an on-campus job or, um, even things like resume building, you know, we push really hard that, but being a varsity athlete is great on your resume, but you know, it's also great on your resume, having multiple internships and having job shadowing opportunities. And, and so they're missing out on a lot of resume building opportunities because they genuinely don't have the time. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I want to kind of bring it around to, to mental health and we'll probably just kind of stick with, with college athletes. It's a college podcast and, and that's where I think both of our expertise are, is in, but um, you're hearing a lot more about mental health awareness. You know, are we seeing more, um, are we seeing more causes of, of, um, of decreased mental health because we're able to diagnose it a little bit better and we've got more professionals in the field? Or do you feel like there are more things kind of going out there in the environment where today's athlete is dealing with a little bit more than maybe athletes a decade or two decades or, or beyond? I think both. I think that there, while there's still plenty of stigma, there's less stigma. So we're talking about it more. People are more open about it. We're more aware. I think that we're better able to see the red flags and to, to catch it sooner and diagnose people and get them treated sooner. And so we're seeing that. But, you know, we're working with Gen Z and it's a big topic that I'm, I'm talking about with a lot of athletic conferences right now is this idea that this generation, so the, the folks born 1997 and on, are dealing with a very unique set of stressors. So they are the self-reported, they're, they're the least likely generation to report good or very good mental health. They are more stressed by current events because they have a lot more access to it. They're inundated with it. And the, the frontal lobe is not yet developed to be able to, to 
you know, maybe manage some of that in the ways that some of us that are a little older have have some of those resources to, to mentally manage it. Um, but there are a lot of unique demands that they are experiencing that we never did. Online bullying wasn't a thing when I was in high school and in college mm -hmm. because social media wasn't a thing. Um, you know, Facebook came out while I was in college. I didn't have texting in college. So, you know, I think that those are unique stressors that we don't appreciate in this age group as much. And we, we think that they're softer. We think that they are, um, they complain more, but they're really facing a unique set of demands and stressors. I mean, if you think about the athletes of 20 years ago, sure, there were newspaper op-eds written about, you know, how bad they stuck. But now these kids are getting death threats in their Twitter inboxes. And you've got your, you know, keyboard warriors that are sending these tweets that are saying terrible things about 18-year-old children. Um, I guess they're adults. To me, they're children. But, you know, to 18-year-old people, there's 50-year-old men sitting on their couch saying, this punter's a piece of crap because he blah, 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 blah. And, and that just wasn't a stressor that existed. And so you know, we, we know that these are things, but I don't think we're equipping um, these young folks. We know that the suicide rates are, are climbing. We know that the number of untreated mental health issues are climbing. We know that the rate of students in general and student athletes showing up at college with a previous mental health diagnosis or a previous medication trial for mental health is is increasing at double digit rates. And so, you know, there's a lot of factors, um, you know, loneliness. We know that loneliness in this generation is a serious problem. They are the most connected, but the most lonely group of, of people we've had in college ever. And so, you know, there's just all of these demands. And I think that we're finally starting to slow down. And those of us in the older generations are finally starting to see that it's a thing and we need to address it versus just kind of hoping they toughen up. So um, it's a really muddy picture, but I think it's a very multifaceted problem. Well, I mean, the fact you got 40 year old men following 16 year old boys and girls on, on social media to see where they're going to end up playing college and living and dying on that is uh, it, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. I'm sure I'll get in a little bit of trouble about it, but I, I don't know. I, it's not something I don't think I could, I, I know I would never do, but uh, then again, I, I'm probably right about it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you did say something about, you know, there's kind of this perception that this generation, whether you want to say millennials and generation C, Z are a little bit soft, but I don't know if people really kind of take the time to to necessarily think about again all the different things that they're dealing with that generations just ten years ago weren't dealing with. So yep. you know, is dealing with or, or talking with athletes, whether it's trying to get help their performance or you're doing it kind of in that clinical setting, is some of it just suck it up theory, or are there some things and tips and, and practical things that? athletes can be doing to help them kind of work through some of these kind of modern stressors? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's old school thinking, which is the suck it up mentality. Um, but the rising suicide rates would tell us that it's not, that doesn't work. Um, hmm. It's a really great response because it, it removes any responsibility from whoever's saying it, like just suck mm -hmm. it up versus mm -hmm. saying, you know what, maybe I need to help kind of invest or I need to invest in you and help you identify what's going on. Um, I, we were talking, I was talking with a coach the other day that, you know, said, um, I don't know why I can't just tell them how it is. Here's what I'm noticing. Go fix it. And I said to this coach, you know, well, here's the deal. They, they probably know it. They know 
the behavior they're doing. They're not, they're not stupid. But you telling them to go fix it isn't helping them under, understand why the behavior is happening. Um, whether it's I need to lose five pounds or I need to um, pay better attention and concentrate harder, now, hey, you've gained five pounds. Hey, you're not focused. And the athlete's going to be like, yeah, duh. Like, I know that. But I right. like, and I can go lose five pounds or I can pretend I'm concentrating better. But if I, if the reason that I've gained five pounds or that I'm not concentrating is because I'm so anxious, whether it's about my position on the team and I don't know where I stand and I think my coach hates me, or it's because my parents are getting divorced and my uncle was diagnosed with cancer. And here I am trying to do all this stuff. If we don't understand the underlying thing, then we don't actually fix anything. And I think that that's one thing that um, this cohort is really struggling with is, you know, finding people who are allies in helping them understand and identify this stuff versus people that are going to tell them they're the problem, right? To me, there's a big difference between you have a problem and you are the problem. And the suck it up nature is the you are the problem, suck it up and figure it out versus you have a problem, let's figure out how to fix it together. Um, and so I think that's the big difference for me. And suck it up can work short term, but mm -hmm. it's never going to work long term. So how much of your job would you say is kind of coaching the coaches through some of this stuff? I mean, honestly, not as much as I'd like. Um, I, mm -hmm. of our staff, or it's, it's a bit of a pet project of mine where I'm now doing monthly coaching seminars on different topics. And so we talked about mental health basics. We talked about Gen Z and coaching implications. We're going to talk about psychological um, considerations for recruiting. We're going to talk about how um, coaches can maintain and manage themselves during team mental health crises. Um, so I'm, I'm really wanting to do that. I do a fair bit of one-on-one, -on -one, but with confidentiality, sometimes I can't do much of it. Um, but when I have the opportunity to, I think it's just as important for me to be working with coaches to say, okay, here's what's going on. There are times I sit down with a coach and an athlete and we sit in the athletic trainer and we say, okay, here's where we're at. What's our plan? How do we get coach to understand to some degree what's going on? Um, how do we get athletes to open up to coach so that coach feels included as well? Um, so there's a fair bit of that, but I think that there's room uh, for a lot more. And that's one big thing I advocate for um, within my team. Very good. So just, um, I want to ask you one kind of maybe practical takeaway that any students are listening might be able to, um, might be able to use, um, whether it be before a game or practice or even before an exam or an interview. So um, one of the things we've been talking about in my sports site class here just lately has been um, arousal before games, specifically um, anxiety and stress. So for that athlete, we'll just say, we'll have an example for that athlete good basketball player, game's going on, shoot the three, no problem, hits layups, can drive, do all that, but they get to the free throw line and just freeze, right? Or the yeah. golfer over the ball who, you know, oh, in yeah. practice is great and then gets in competition just free. Is there anything practically or just some like small steps that athletes can use who might be listening to kind of maybe help them overcome a little bit of uh, performance anxiety? Yeah, I think the first thing, I've, I have three things that I can think of off the top of my head that I think are universally applicable. So the first thing is identifying the optimal zone of functioning, right? Where's your eyes mm -hmm. off, our inverted mm -hmm. view, all that. But that means being in tune and understanding that anxiety is good and it is helpful. And so sometimes we, uh, because we think of it as a bad thing, 
it becomes more of a bad thing. So we normalize it and we identify strategies to help us relax, whether it's breathing, whether it's music before we, you know, play in terms of free throw, um, you know, what is my, what is my imagery? Am I seeing the ball go in or am I seeing it go out before I even take the shot? So second thing is developing an imagery routine. So spending time actually seeing what I'm doing. Um, and then the third thing being developing kind of reset button strategies. So things like mindfulness. So maybe when I'm starting to feel over aroused, I'm just going to be really present in my senses. So I'm going to feel my feet on the floor. I'm going to feel the club in my hands. I'm going to lock into one sense and one thing I can notice. Um, so that would kind of be the combination of that embracing anxiety and finding a strategy that helps me relax, like a, a good, you know, couple of breaths, um, developing some imagery practice that we're doing uh, at home at practice and on the court or course, and then coming up with kind of a, a way to reset using mindfulness strategies by tuning into our senses. Those to me are kind of three really simple, easy, implementable um, exercises that, that anyone could apply and, and find some benefit from. Outstanding. Um, so if anybody wanted to get into sports psychology as, as a career, what would be your advice and what would be the steps in education they would need to do? So there's a few ways. Um, so if you want to do a, like my job requires a doctorate in clinical psychology or a master's in some kind of mental health counseling. So social work, okay. uh, psychology, mental health counseling, some licensable degree. Um, and so those would kind of be, be the routes. Now, you know, for a director of counseling and sports psychology, so my, my previous role at IU would require the doctoral level. Um, mm -hmm. And at Ohio State, we have two doctoral level psychologists and two master's level. They're athletic counselors because the word psychologist is protected in all 50 states. So I'm a sports psychologist. If you want to be called a sports psychologist, you have to have a doctorate and you have to have a license uh, as a okay. psychologist. But you can be an athletic counselor at the master's level. And they're, we have, we're booming with jobs right now. We have way more jobs than people who are qualified to fill them. So it's a very viable thing right wow. now. Um, but it does require the master's, the doctorate, and a, a license to practice mental health services um, for my job. There are additional roles within college athletics where folks are, um, it's the kinesiology side. So uh, a close colleague of mine uh, at University of Kentucky, he's wonderful. He teaches in their master's in sports psychology program. Um, he provides the performance only services to their athletic department. Um, so he went the kinesiology route, has the doctorate in sports psychology from a kinesiology department, and so is just doing those performance services. Um, same with the, the sports psychology consultant person at Louisville. She is just performance only. So, you know, there is that route as well, um, but you don't provide the clinical services, but still will always require a master's or a doctorate. All right, there you have it. And as a uh, as an Ohio University grad, it's going to be hard for me to say go Red Hawks or Buckeyes, but we will support Dr. Chelsea Day. So if somebody wants to find you uh, on social media or, or any interviews or conferences you got coming up, um, where can they find you and, and learn a little bit more about your work? My Twitter is Sports Psych Mind. I try to be good about it. Um, Dr. <laughs> is my website which is an easy way to contact me um and i don't know i have a keynote in boston but not i think it's not like an open keynote so i don't think i have any good exciting talks coming up soon um but i 
post pictures of me at sporting events uh, on Twitter, which is thrilling for everybody. Um, <laughs> but I'm always happy to connect with folks, whether it's students, whether it's you know professionals. That um, I love connecting with folks. So happy to to connect in any format. And you've cute, you post really cute baby pics too. So I try. That, I try to post it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Dr. Chelsea Day, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for our next guests in late March. As always, we'd like to say a special thank you to student producer Trenton Roberts for his work behind the scenes. Thank you for listening. This is the Center for Sports Studies podcast broadcasting from the Trine Broadcasting Network. For more information about the Center for Sports Studies, please visit trine.edu. Also, be sure to like the Trine Center for Sports Studies on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TrineCSS. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.